Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. On this show, we'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty and homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing and disparities in healthcare, and today's topic, immigration. It's hard, if you've been following the news at any level over the last year and a half, not to recognize how important the immigration has figured in our national debate. Uh, I was only a few days on this job before the new president enacted a, the Muslim travel ban. And as a college, we've been thinking about the relationship between what we do here and immigration. A huge proportion of our students at City College are, are sons and daughters of immigrants or they're immigrants themselves. We are a college of immigrants. We are a city of immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants. And uh, these issues, policy issues, have really thrust themselves to the fore of our national consciousness over the last uh, 18, 19 months. Over the last few weeks, nearly all of our news outlets have been reported on the heartbreaking stories of children as little as nine months old being separated from their parents once they crossed the border between Mexico and the U.S. seeking asylum. According to MSNBC, some 2,500 migrant children were being detained in foster facilities across the country. Up to 700 of them were brought to New York State, but the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services wouldn't even tell the New York State governor uh, where they were being kept. Uh, we've probably all seen the image of a two-year-old Honduran girl crying as she watches her mother being searched by Border Patrol agents. Um, on my uh, news feed the other day was a story of a one-year-old in a courtyard, in a courthouse, um, for his immigration hearing uh, and really doing nothing but, but, but crying. But you dig deeper and deeper into the... Into, um, national reporting, and you see really a climate in America changing against the whole idea of, of immigration. Um, only a few days ago, there were stories of men and women who, as immigrants, had enrolled in our armed services in a program designed to bring them into citizenship, and they've been serving our country alongside everyone else in service to the country and armed forces, and they have started to be um, moved out of the military with, with the, really the flimsiest of excuses, and on and on and on. I could spend uh, the whole show introducing the affronts to immigrant rights, but rather than me taking up time, I would like to, Im uh, to introduce the first of two guests we have today. Um, the first guest is Professor Tatiana Klein. She's an associate professor and the director of bilingual education and the TOEIS-OL programs at, at City College. That's a teaching English to speakers of other languages. Um, and she's also the faculty advisor here to our dream team. We'll talk a little bit about that um, at the City College of New York. In the second half of the show, I'll be bringing an old friend, Angela Fernandez, who is the executive director and supervising attorney of the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights to join the conversation. But let me first take a few minutes and just tell you a little bit about Professor Klein. Uh, she has a uh, uh, doctor of education in international educational development from Teachers College at Columbia University. From 2014 to 2015, she served as president of the New York State Association for bilingual education, and she was a Fulbright Scholar in Oaxaca, Mexico. 
Um, she's the author of Immigration, the Ultimate Teen Guide, and she's the co-author of two other books in her academic field, which is uh, language and bilingual education. Um, she's also the director and co-producer of the Living Undocumented documentary series uh, and Una Vida Dos Paisas, um, that's One Life, Two Countries, Children and Youth Back in Mexico. And if you uh, are listening on the radio around back are quotation marks. These are people that have been sent from the United States back to Mexico. Um, her academic work on immigration has been cited in briefs before courts adjudicating DACA cases in New York. Professor Klein, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. I'm really glad you're here. Um, and let's start really with your, your work on the Dream Team. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about who they are and, and what you've been doing with these young people. Right, so in 2012, I got an email from, I believe it was Jatsiri Tovar, and I want to give her a shout out because today's actually her birthday. Oh, fantastic. She was the founding president of the City College Dream Team, and they were working with the New York State Youth Leadership Council to start Dream Teams around all the CUNY campuses. And of course, City College being a beacon of immigration, we had to be at the forefront of that. So in 2012, they started petition to start a club, right? And you have to have signatures. They were literally like out just asking random people for signatures, just like, please sign this so we can start this club. They drafted their constitution, their bylaws. And six years later, the dream team is going strong. Um, we've had three or four presidents already. It is a student club. Anyone is welcome. You don't have to be undocumented. Obviously, many of the students are undocumented within without DACA. Um, we have students who were formerly undocumented but were able to change their status, whose families are undocumented, and just students who are allies or accomplices, right? And they come together for many reasons. They come together to have a space where they don't have to feel like they're the only ones, where they don't have to feel like they're maybe keeping a secret or explain themselves, where they just understand each other. They come together to share resources because, you know, it's such a need. It's, I always talk about my own immigration history is, is coming into this country as a refugee where we got so many resources. Um, my parents got English classes. They um, paid for our flight. We had to pay them back, right? So many things. So when you're a refugee, you get those supports. I think it's less now than it was before. Just out of curiosity, where were you coming from? So um, I was born in the former Soviet Union, mm -hmm. and we came here when I was five and a half. We're Jewish, and we came because of the anti-Semitism. Uh -huh. So, you know, I have an immigration history and I was quite young and then I start meeting students here at City College who were undocumented and I'm just like wow you know their families suffered my family suffered but instead of getting the support that we had gotten they just get obstacle upon obstacle upon obstacle and that has magnified right in their way so um, to me like being asked to be their advisor was just the best part of my job really because you know our students, you know, I love teaching and they have to come to class, but to be on the dream team, it's because you want to be on the dream team, right. right? This is voluntary. And so they meet once a week um, to support each other. They also really work hard to educate the college community about what their needs are to fight for their needs. And I know just um, last month they came to meet with you, so thank you for making the time to meet with them. They have events. Um, to highlight what resources we have on campus, but also to highlight what, what we need from the community as well. So um, for any, sometimes I get students who um, faculty members know that I'm the advisor, so they send them to me and they'll say things to me like, surely I can't be the only one regarding their status and their struggles. And I'm just like, gosh, we've had this team for five or six years, so I'm really happy to be here today to spread the word that any student who is undocumented or you know deals with immigration issues or wants to support this cause there's a space for them on the campus and they meet every Thursday during fall and spring semester at 1230. You know it's funny you, you, you talk about a student coming to you saying you know surely I'm not the only one and, and it struck me over my years at City College 
that so many of our students carry the carry some burden. Maybe it's the burden of poverty. Maybe it's the burden of being the first in their families to go to college. Maybe it's racism. Maybe it's immigration mm -hmm. status. And sometimes it's all the above. And sometimes it's yeah. all of the above. And and a huge proportion of them um, wander around this campus and probably around this city thinking that their story is, it has to be a secret, it has to be unique, there's nobody like me. And then they find each other and, 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 and things get a little bit better. They do. Um, usually at the end of every year we celebrate, we go to my apartment and we have a, a party to celebrate the year. And um, we're, somebody had said like, oh, I was on the basketball team. We were all like, what? You were on the bat? Like it was, that was the secret. Mm -hmm. And then we're like, all right, let's everyone go around and share something. About, I was a bartender. And we were all like, what, what was so ironic to me was, you know, what generally is like, not talked about is their undocumented status but in this right. case that was something they all knew and wasn't a big deal but what was a big deal was that they played on the basketball right. team or the kind of jobs so yeah it just creates a space where you don't have to explain yourself and you feel like a part of a, a community you know you talked earlier about your refugee past right. and, and you know of course family separation now is is happening yeah. on our southern border among people who are in the process of, of, of doing which it is an internationally recognized norm, coming to a country to seek asylum. And, and thinking about that, you know, it, it feels like the, the categories of immigration are all being collapsed, right? You, there, there are people that came to the country without, um, out, of document, out of documented status. There are immigrants who come on visas. There are people who are trying to come because they're fleeing repression or hardship or, 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 or prejudice. Um, there, are, there are people who have, were born in other countries but may even be naturalized citizens now. And it strikes me that one of the things that characterizes the moment we're in right now is that increasingly none of those differences matter and that, that people are being collapsed into this one category of um, foreigner. Foreigner who is not white generally speaking, right? And because of that, dangerous, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and I've even been reading that recently. I mean, immigration is something that's so hard. When you work in immigration, it's literally changes by the minute, right? And some of the new news that's coming out is there's a task force being created to look at people who have become naturalized citizens to possibly take away their citizenship. And before that was just... You know, if, if somebody had committed, quote unquote, an act of terrorism, they could denounce their citizenship. And now they're looking to do that for many people. So it's a scary time we're living in. That's right. You know, Tatiana, one of the questions, or one of the conversations we've been having on, on campus is a conversation about what colleges as an institution can do in the face of, of this increased pressure around immigration. I, I feel that as president of City College, where so many of our students are... Um, not U.S. citizens. We have a compelling interest to do something. Um, and of course, what you can do ranges from, you know, speaking and writing and protesting on the one hand to, to real acts of, of, of resistance that, that attempt to, to gum up the works and prevent um, the implementation of what we view as, as, as unjust policies. I remember talking to students about it and, I, and at one point I said to them, you know, what's the model for our activity? Is it, is it the March on Washington? Is that what we should be seeking to emulate? Or is it the Underground Railroad? And I wonder as somebody who's worked with these students on a college campus, what do you think the range of things that, that an institution like City College should be doing? Yeah. Well, I think there's 
we, I think we're a model of, of what's do, what we're doing right, but I think we can continue to do better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when um, Trump first became president or when he was elected, there was panic, right? And we were talking a lot about ICE and raids, and yes, those things are happening, but they're not really happening on college campuses, especially in New York. Um, so I feel like that was the initial, like, how do we just keep people safe? And then we had the looking at different spaces and where people can and can't go. And I remember um, Paul Accio Grosso sent an email showing us um, ICE had actually contacted the International Student Office. Yeah, Paul, just so you know at home, Paul is, is the, the, the chief counsel. He's my uh, lawyer. He's the top lawyer at City College. Yes, go and on. I thought that was great that he actually showed us. I mean, they blacked out the key information, but right. that ICE had actually contacted them about an international student mm-hmm. and that the, the procedure was to forward that email to directly to him, to not answer, to not. So I thought that was a great example because we really saw like, wow, this is really happening. It's not a physical presence, but things are happening. So that kind of alerted us. But I think we have to first inform people on campus. And that's not just giving information to our undocumented students, because one, most people don't have that information of who our undocumented students are, and most people should not have that information, right? That's very confidential. Um, But it's also informing all students because it could be their mother, it could be their aunt, it's their neighbor, and it's certainly someone in a classroom with them, right? But it's also informing our faculty and staff. For example, our ID office, right? What kinds of IDs they can and can't accept, that's your welcome to City College. So if somebody comes with a Mexican passport and somebody in the ID office says, oh, this doesn't count, now they have to like explain to them why. Or So really educate educating like from the financial aid office to saying you need to fill out an affidavit to get in-state tuition. There's so many different layers. Um, So educating everybody about what's going on and then making the resources available. So there's so many different types of resources. Um, I'm so glad we're having um, Angela Fernandez with us. So obviously legal resources and we have CUNY Citizenship now on campus too, which is amazing. Um, But socio-emotional support, financial support. I just want to remind everyone that New York State still does not have the New York Dream Act, right? Right. Our students are still paying out of pocket. The new scholarships um, from Cuomo do not cover them at all. Um, Connecticut passed financial aid for undocumented students. New Jersey, like this is really a shame that we're in New York and we're still... um, we're still in this situation. So financial resources, um, the U.S. Dream Scholarship is wonderful. That fully covers um, many of our undocumented students that are here. But I also want to, you know, highlight is that the majority of undocumented students are not in college. Right. Right. They're not here. And so the ones we get, they really are like they've persevered and persevered beyond obstacles. Um, so having all those supports for them and ideally having them in one place. Right. Um, I think the UC, the University of California model of having these immigration centers where people can go for a meeting place for legal support, not having to run around and tell everybody what their story is, what their status is. That's very taxing and draining. So I think, you know, if City College can be a model for that in the future, that would be really amazing. And then um, something small but but very big is really being clear with undocumented students what they can and can't major in so that they don't get to almost the end of their degree to find out, oh, because you don't have a social security number, especially for students without DACA, you can't do this major. And now you've spent four years, maybe often many more than four years, paying out of your pocket, and now what? So I think being very clear in the information that we give, and we have to give it to all the students, right? Right. Because we don't know who's who, and they're not necessarily going to tell us, and they don't have to tell us. Um, So I think just... Get, getting all that those different layers of information and creating maybe a hub for um, immigration would be amazing. And, and most of the things you listed 
are, are things that we do internally exactly. to service the students who are on this campus as students uh, w without documented status. Right. And I want to talk a little bit about what we should be doing in the world. And, and, and you're a great person to talk to about this because in addition to your academic and scholarly work, you've moved into an area of you know, writing a, a, a guidebook for teenagers mm -hmm. and then doing this, this, uh, this documentary series, yes. Living Undocumented. And, I, and, and, and so these are things designed not to stay on campus, to get out in the world and try to change the way people think about immigration and maybe develop a constituency for things like a New York State Dream Act. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the work you've been doing in that field? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I think what I've realized is doing this, being in immigration, being in education, it's urgent and it requires action and it requires change. And me just writing academic articles and books, um, academic texts is important because I'm in academia and I, you know, if that's, that's what we have to do and that's fine, but it's not enough. And it doesn't impact change. Although we did, um, I, and thank you for mentioning in the article, I wrote, uh, co-authored an article with three undocumented students that was cited in New York's amicus brief mm. um, that they defeated the Trump administration and had to reopen DACA applications. So oh, that fantastic. was something I was like, wow, this really like research and policy coming together yeah. to make change. But I um, was at an event maybe six years ago through the New York City Department of Education where they filmed us. And I never knew what they did with the films, but they mic'd you, they filmed you and everything. And afterwards, we did a panel on immigration and the film, the person that was hired to film us came up to me and said, I'd love to work with you pro bono and do something, do a film or something. And I was like, I thought he just meant like take what we did and put it on YouTube. And I thought that was even cool, right. but it was way, it ended up being way cooler. Um, and we talked to the undocumented students said what do you need and many of them talked about when I was in high school I was too ashamed to tell anyone or I asked somebody but I got the wrong information so we said let's make a short film and it was only 15 minutes because I know how you know high schools teach there's a lot of teaching to the test if it's not on the test it's not on the regions it's not taught often so we made this short film that we said everyone could watch the undocumented students their peers who are you know hopefully going to be allies with them and, and future voters um, their teachers who sometimes and administrators and guidance counselors because there's so much information but there's so much misinformation so let's make this short film and a curriculum to go with it and that film after we released that film it blew my mind it impacted like I would say like a thousand times more than anything I've written put together and not only impacted people in the sense that oh it was interesting I learned something but it made them want to do something so since then we've done two more films and we have three films with um with curriculum guides and I've also tried to take my work to the public sphere um speaking in the media I know I had I think it was like five or six years ago I worked with you on um I did a, a editorial for the Poughkeepsie Journal right. because we New York City is a little bit of a bubble and I partly grew up in Poughkeepsie um I wrote something for public radio um international I believe PRI um so really trying to get this message out there to to make an impact beyond academia mm -hmm. you know it, it it's funny Our, I've always thought of City College as an activist campus. I mm -hmm. think we have activist professors. We absolutely have activist students. But this is a tricky area for activism, right? You have the people who are at the center of the fight are in real jeopardy sometimes if they, if they take too prominent a stand. I mean, even when DACA itself was announced yeah. as a policy, it had, you know, one of the kind of side effects of coming out and getting registered is now everybody knows who right. you are, where you live, where you work. And your family too. And your family too. 
And so I wonder when you talk to students about you know, the relationship between advocacy and personal safety. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what those conversations feel like. Well, for the ones who already have DACA, they, you know, to an extent, their government already has their information, so they don't have too much to lose. I mean, it's already out there, and they've already been very verbal, and it is through undocumented youth that the DACA program came to be. Mm -hmm. It is not through U.S. citizen voters, right? right? It is through their voices and their struggles and their fight. So, you know, they're not going to be silenced. Yeah. <laughs> we, we hear, like, we worry for them, but they are out there in the front lines. And, you know, the but the landscape has changed. Things and things are a little bit different, but they're still out there. Um, of course, it's maybe the students I, you know, that join the dream team that are much more outspoken, right? The ones that are more quiet or more afraid to talk, they're not on the dream team, so I don't communicate with them as much. Now, the ones that we have to be more careful about, especially are the ones without DACA, right? right. But some of them have chosen to take a stand and be in the films and, you know, are moving forward because you have to keep living your life, yeah. right? And I admire them so much for the work that they do and for their fearlessness. And that pushes me to have to take a step up even more, right? To put myself out there because I, I don't live in, with that fear. Mm -hmm. So it's my responsibility and we, we work collectively and we have different roles. And so maybe I can do certain things where they have to do different kinds of things. But we're all in this together and it is because of them that so, so much of this discourse has moved forward mm -hmm. and into policy. And even though we have been moving backwards, there have been small successes, right? Um, a federal judge ruled on April 24th that DACA must reopen not only to continue applications, which is happening now, but new applications, which is huge because so many high school students have been coming out now without the, the possibility to get DACA. So the Trump administration has until the end of J July, they have 90 days to respond. So we're waiting for that to come out and our fingers are crossed that that will go through. At the same time, we have seven states suing the Trump administration to end DACA. So it is a never-ending roller coaster. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is, it's, it raises an interesting question, right? If so, they're taking new applications for DACA status, or they might. They once. might. We are hopeful that they will. So, if you had a student in this current climate come to you mm. in two months, and and she said, "Now I have this opportunity to register for DACA," I don't know what I would say. What would you say? Everyone who I know who has DACA, it has drastically changed their lives for the better. Mm -hmm. Drastically. Not only them, but their families as well. Despite the risks. Despite the risks. However, it is a risk. And, and that's why when you look at the numbers of who is eligible for DACA and who applied for DACA, there is, you know, not ev everyone has applied because of the risk. So I think it's a, it's a risk that people have to decide individually and with their families. But... I have taken um, two groups of students from from CUNY, um, mostly City College, to um, Oaxaca, Mexico, um, mm -hmm. with advanced parole when they still had advanced parole, and getting that, you know, having them meet their families again and be out of um, be able to be in Mexico and travel was amazing. So, but it's an individual decision at the end of the day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, Angela Fernandez, the executive director and supervising attorney of the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights will join us and join the conversation. Uh, we're pleased to welcome Angela Fernandez to the conversation. She is a first-generation Dominican whose mother migrated from the United States from Baitoa of Santiago de los Caballeros, Dominican Republic. Um, she's got a bachelor's degree from Boston University and a JD from Columbia University School of Law. Um, her legal experience has been primarily focused on representing and advocating for immigrant and refugee, immigrants and refugees in the United States and abroad. 
Um, she's, the found, she's founded and managed elementary schools in the South Bronx and Washington, D.C. She's taught women's studies in Spanish to female detainees at Rikers Island Correctional Center. And she was a staffer for U.S. Senator Bill Bradley and District Chief of Staff for U.S. Representative Jose Serrano. Um, and I'll say, I, I, Angela and I met a long time ago when she was teaching law classes here at City College. Yep, so we that's are, right. We are old friends and, um, and old neighbors as well. And old comrades. And old comrades, <laughs> that's right. Um, she also co-led, and this is where I really want to start the mm -hmm. conversation. Well, actually, no. I thought I was going to start here. She co-led the effort to end New York State's participation in the Secure Communities Program. And she also co-developed the first-in-the-nation Universal Court-Appointed Representation Program for detained immigrants. And I thought I was going to have you talk about mm -hmm. that first. We'll come around to it. But as we were preparing for the second half of the show, Angela said that she just got back from the southern border. And I wanted her to start by telling us, what, what did you sure. see when you were down there? No, thank you. Um, uh, you know, what you see is uh, this system. It's a system um, that was actually set up quite some time ago. And, uh, and it's an incredibly powerful system and you see how the desert has been weaponized, uh, which in the end has unfortunately killed a lot of immigrants as they come across the border or when they come to present before they can even make it um, uh, to the actual um, border crossing um, uh, where the U.S. government is supposed to be processing people. Uh, it was very moving. Uh, we were there, um, a group of uh, individuals um, who have been directly impacted by immigration law, attorneys, uh, activists. We came from um, all parts of the southern states, and a small contingent came from New York. And uh, to hear a woman who was in her 40s talk about how when she was a child, she crossed the entire desert with her mother and with groups of people and she said it was so painful to have to make a decision to leave two people behind yeah. and she said that that trauma is what she carried with her her entire life and even though she was able to regularize she said that once she had her own kids and they were grown up she fell into a deep five-year depression oh boy and so I think that those are the kinds of stories that we don't hear and you have to go down there yourself. The other piece is that we really wanted to make a human connection. As an organization, I felt that it was very important that we make a human connection with the people that are working on the ground. Part of it is that an organization like mine and our sister organizations, we don't have marketing budgets, so our names are not out there. Um, uh, and so we actually have to kind of, you know, spend the money and go down and meet, break bread together, talk, identify what's happening. And what I had said was we are an organization that has been doing this just like yours for over 30 years. Um, uh, we provide uh, help with, with DACA. We provide help with naturalization. But we also do deportation defense. So knowing that the government is just spreading people all over the country. The children we know have been spread out all over the country. These children have been separated by their parents. And now these parents are also separated, are spread out around the country. Said, any parents that are coming to the United States, I'm sorry, to New York City, that need legal representation, we're here. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, before I even landed in LaGuardia, we got two clients. Yeah. Who, so whose parents who were separated from their children, their children are here in New York. So I think that as a movement, it's really important to um, go and meet people on the ground where they are or else or else why are we doing this i mean it's just it's really important to do that to, to make that kind of sacrifice and make that kind of connection mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
in, in introducing you, one of the things I mentioned is that um, you led the effort, or you co-led the effort mm -hmm. to end New York State's participation in the Secure Communities Program. Yeah. And um, could you tell us about that effort? But also, um, I guess you remarked just a few moments ago off, off the air that this is a program that's raising its ugly head again. Yes. It's, so unfortunately, um, uh, Secure Communities as a program uh, really um, uh, started being implemented across the country back in uh, 2009, 2008, 2009. And um, as an organization, uh, we had been keeping close watch uh, at New to New York with New York State. So it's a program, it's a fingerprint sharing program right. where um, uh, the federal government um, said uh, when someone is arrested, fingerprints that are taken Today, or rather before secure communities, fingerprints are taken. They go up to, F to the FBI, check and see if there's you know, anyone who's wanted at the national and international level. Um, and then that's it. Secure communities says, we're going to go send the fingerprints to FBI, and then we're going to send them to the Department of Homeland Security to see if the person has an immigration violation. And so we knew that that was going to be very dangerous because it opens up all sorts of possibilities. It especially opens up the possibility of a local police officer to profile someone mm -hmm. and say, you know what, I don't like this guy. I want to get him out of my town. Because this happens at arrest, not at conviction. No, or not at, it's, no it's, it happens at arrest. So some, some officer makes a decision to put somebody in a squad car and their fingerprints are sent all over the system. Exactly. And then what happens is that they, even if they drop the charges, right. they're not going to release them until they get the information back from DHS. If DHS says this person overstayed their visa, that person is not going anywhere and they're going to be transferred over to immigration detention. So we as an organization, um, uh, with, in partnership with Immigrant Defense Project, we're the only organizations that said here in New York State we're going to keep close watch. Unfortunately, Governor Patterson signed the agreement. No one knew. We found out because they came up on the ICE website. And we started organizing. And no, we were the only ones on the dance floor in New York State at that time. And all of the other organizations were saying this is not, they didn't think it was going to go anywhere. They didn't think it was going to be important. They didn't think all of these things. Then it finally really came to a head. And uh, I have to give Governor Cuomo credit. The first thing he did when he came into power um, as governor, one of his aides called us and said, we want to get out of this program. And uh, Governor Cuomo pulled New York State out of secure communities. Massachusetts followed. Illinois followed. And then the federal government came back and said, remember when we told you it was local choice if you want to participate in secure communities? Well, actually, that's not the case. So you're going to have to be part of it. So that's the resurgence of the program. Now. No, that happened back then in 2011, 2010, oh. 2011. They came back and said, you know, but and so then what happened now is that it, it's built, it, is, it has been in effect, but the executive order that Trump signed um, this passed in 2017, it talks about how secure community is going to go in full force. So let me back up, actually, because then in 2014, because there was still continued protest at the national level to stop uh, secure communities, um, uh, President Obama said, okay, we're going to do something called prosecutorial discretion, which gives folks who've been caught up in secure communities when they're up now they're in deportation proceedings, the government can say, you know what, we're going to exercise prosecutorial discretion. You are not going to be placed in deportation proceedings. So what this executive order that Trump signed in 2017, they remove prosecutorial discretion. So that's what I mean by secure communities now being in full force. I see. I see. I mean, something I wanted to ask you about uh, that is suggested by, by this history 
is the relationship between, you know, we have a mayor and we have a governor who've been actually really good on immigration issues. Um, and it's a little similar to the conversation about what we can do as an institute. We would like to think that our stance is very good on immigration issues as well. But there's a relationship between what you can do at the local level and what you can do at the federal level. Mm -hmm. and, and what kind of leeway do we have as a city or a state or a college community to carve out our own space as far as immigration is concerned? So we actually have quite a bit of leeway. And, I, and you know, if we compare it to the um, Fugitive Slave Act okay. uh, of the late 1800s, that was a federal response to local northern states allowing slaves who, who, got, who arrived in northern states be free. And, um, uh, and, of course, the federal government, or the South and the federal government, um, did not support that and implemented a law that said that if you do not, look, the northern states, if you do not help um, in uh, turning over uh, sl slaves to slave catchers and to other local, kind of local police that they had um, uh, deputized, uh, you're going to um, uh, pay the legal consequences. So it's very similar to what's happening now. You have, you know, kind of these sanctuary states, sanctuary cities that are being told that they're going to be punished by the federal government if um, they don't, quote unquote, slave catch mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and turn people over. Um, uh, so, so I think there's still a lot of leeway. Um, I think that the uh, attorney generals, for example, in response to um, one of the DACA um, uh, decisions, um, uh, or rather, yeah, the, the attorney, the attorney general sessions, uh, DACA decision, um, they banded together and filed a lawsuit. So I think there's a lot to do. There's mm -hmm. a lot that can be done. Mm -hmm. You know, could you talk just, I mean, what's a bad, if you're an immigrant, what's a bad state to live in? I, I, New York state, upstate is a bad state. Is a Absolutely. Bad state. What's, what's the difference between living upstate and downstate if you're, if mm -hmm. you don't have documentation? Um, the uh, difference uh, upstate is that you can be um, stopped by Customs and Border Patrol uh, 100 miles from the border, which wow. is a large, it's, it's a majority of the state actually, right. and uh, be asked uh, where were you born and be asked for proof of um, uh, some kind of lawful status. And if you can't show it, you will be arrested right there. Even if you are a U.S. citizen, you will be arrested, and then you'll have to show it later. Yeah, there was something that, that, that came up. Um, everything comes up on my Google feed mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. But of, of people uh, being pulled over 100 miles on main highways mm -hmm. from, from the Canadian border. Um, you're listening to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. My guests today are Professor Tatiana Klein, the director of the bilingual education and faculty advisor to the Dream Team at City College of New York and Angela Fernandez, who is the Executive Director and Supervising Attorney of the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights. Uh, we're focusing on immigrant rights right now, and I wanted to bring the conversation back to something that we started to talk about in the first half of the program. We talked about what the college can do, should do, has the resources to do as an externally facing institution. Um, and of course, one of the things that we always want to do is try to build partnerships with community organizations. And, and so, Angela, I want to ask you from the community perspective, you look at the institution of City College, and uh, we, we try to do what we can for our students, um, but I think there's a bigger role that we can, we can play, and I wonder what, uh, 
what a community organization thinks when they think about City College as, as, a, as, a, as an allied partner, as a comrade? No, of course. I, I, well, for number one, some of our incredible, not only interns, but also staff that we hire at our organization have been educated at City College. Um, uh, so that, all, to me, is already a tremendous uh, partnership. Um, we see it as, uh, as an institution uh, that is uh, open to the community, and, and there's a desire uh, to, to identify ways in which to come up with creative solutions um, uh, around, around what's happening. I, you know, there's the um, Dominican, uh, there's a Dominican Student Association mm -hmm. that uh, has um, uh, reached out to our organization and uh, been very, very supportive um, as well. And so I think that both between the student body and the institution itself, um, uh, we see it as a, as, we see it as the, what it was founded as, as the proletariat, the Harvard of the proletariat and uh, for immigrants, it's it's a it's a big deal. I mean, we know that there are many many immigrants that are enrolled in the school. So, and I also think there's just so much with immigration. There's so much support that's needed. There's so much we can't do it alone. So I think there's no other way but to partner. And I think part of it is get how do we meet? So this mm -hmm. radio show, who knew we were going to have this opportunity to meet and hopefully after talk about what we can do together. But I think it has to be partnership. There's no other way. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's um uh, the kind of internal megaphone that uh, you have as an institution and being able to communicate to all of the students. So, for example, even simply communicating precautions that we share with the community generally, like if you're out of status or if you're transitioning in status, don't travel outside of New York City, yeah. in, in all seriousness. Just, just don't go upstate. Um, because there are people that are looking to um, uh, to arrest immigrants and detain them. I mean, remember, we still have a, a detention bed quota that uh, requires 34,000 immigrants must be detained every night. And we know that now there's, you know, up into, I think there's now about 45 or 48,000 immigrants detained every night in the United States. Could you say, say a little bit more about that? Because I think most people don't know about the detention yeah. bed quota. So there's something called the detention bed mandate is the, is the name of it. So if you can Google it and, and, and find more information about it. And this was um, passed quietly in an appropriations um, uh, bill in 2009. It was introduced, unfortunately, by um, a Democrat from West Virginia, and uh, it uh, requires that uh, the 34,000 detention beds must be filled every night. And there's been this has been in existence. I did read something recently that it looks like they've they've done something to try and over overturn that. Um, uh, I don't know what the final outcome has been, but we've been living with this for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. And 60% of the immigration detention centers are run by two private companies called GEO and uh, Core Civic. And we have a little over 200 detention facilities around the country, mm -hmm. and uh, they are in one of the most inaccessible, inhospitable parts of the United States, and we're warehousing uh, immigrants in, in centers that don't have to comply with a lot of the federal protocols on how you detain individuals, um, and because it's not considered a jail or a prison, it's considered a holding facility, but you can be in a holding facility, facility for two years. Right. So that's like the Korean War was just a police action. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. Hmm. You know, this brings up a kind of uncomfortable point, and, and we've all been so struck <coughs> by how quickly 
and drastically the, the climate for immigrants deteriorated after January 1st, or January what, 10th, I guess it was, mm -hmm. 2017 with the, with the Trump administration. But you start to poke around in the origin of some of these policies, really horrible policies, mm -hmm. and they go back to, they go back five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And so I guess what I want to say is, what, what was the most decisive thing that changed mm -hmm. in, in January 2017? Was it the rhetoric from the president? Was it so that so the the rhetoric is so important. The system that we have today was planned. The seeds were planted in 1996 mm -hmm. with an immigration reform called ERA ERA, right. um, uh, and it did a lot of things, which I won't bore you with all the details. But it cr it just created a whole class of mandatorily deportable and uh, individuals that were in 1996 or 1995, were eligible to get a green card or had green cards already, or, you know, which is legal permanent residency, but a wall came up in 1996. But what changed, and, it was, and it's a cruel and punitive system, and uh, in 2001, we almost overturned it. In August of 2001, 1996 was to be overturned, and then 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. So all that work stopped, and then it just got more punitive. But what happened with, um, which I'm going to say, candidate Trump was how he opened his announcement for his candidacy, for presidency. He targeted Mexican immigrants, specifically. I said horrific things and untrue things. And so there, that's, that was the impact. It was right there. Um, and our organization just started getting phone calls um, nonstop where people wanted to naturalize. And so we had to kind of recreate our intake so that we could naturalize as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And then once he was elected, he appointed as his advisors, and we saw these advisors in his campaign, which was very, very worrying. Uh, Stephen Miller, who we already knew who he was because he was the advisor to Sessions when Sessions was a senator, and Sessions uh, completely torpedoed a CIR, a Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill in 2013. That was Stephen Miller. So when we saw that he was in the White House, we knew that mm -hmm. things were gonna change for the worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, in, in, in the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights, you, you kind of, you split your work between mm -hmm. uh, direct legal assistance to mm -hmm. individuals and, and advocacy mm -hmm. in the broader, and could you just talk a little bit about how you think about the balance between those two things in, sure. in the work that you do? Sure. Um, uh, so I would say it was primarily um, a legal services organization up until 1996. Mm -hmm. 1996 was really kind of the, the red line in the history of, of the organization because people who, uh, most of them green card holders, were coming in and saying, or rather the spouse was saying, my husband just went in for an interview for citizenship, naturalization. He was arrested right there at the interview. So that's when we started to um, add this component, and, and it really kind of grew organically. Um, I would say that the bulk of the work is still legal services. Um, uh, and then the balance is we, we kind of see what, what's the need, what's happening, and, and, and look to see where can we have an impact in a creative way at the local level. And then from there we'll build a coalition of different partners um, uh, and then and then start working on a campaign. Mm -hmm. So so the balance is um, uh, I guess I would say always the 
the solid rock is the legal services. Like right. that doesn't stop. The advocacy doesn't stop either, but it, it's much more nuanced. It's, it's always depending on what the community needs. I see, I see. Um, I mean, this is a question really to, to come back to this idea of what we can do as a college, what you do as a, as, as a, as a community organization. But as, as you think about the kinds of citizen-based pressure that, mm -hmm. that's worked, mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe in the last 18 months, maybe over the course of your work in, mm -hmm. in, in immigration rights, what seems to be the most effective things that citizens can do and students can do? Um, it can do a lot of things. Uh, I think that um, uh, definitely when, when a legal uh, path or a legal solution to something larger, like a policy, like for example, the JFK, what happened with, with the Muslim ban, mm -hmm. having the attorneys inside and having the activists outside um, put so much pressure on, on what was happening to the point that then when it went into the, when it got to the federal government that weekend, um, a federal judge was able to make a determination I mean, based on the law. But I think that there definitely is when the public is, is so outraged um, uh, by what's happening. It has a, a positive uh, influence. Um, uh, and, and I think that, you know, all the students here can 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 write letters to the editor to um, all of the local newspapers that we have here, um, uh, just you know voicing the because it's democracy, right? So voicing and having many 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 voices saying what they don't agree with um, uh, has an impact um, as well. And then you know definitely, I mean, just. Um, uh, you know, demanding that our um, elected officials act on something. Um, uh, and I don't, say, I, don't, I don't say something as in anything. I mean, identifying what it, that is and then, and then demanding that they do that. And, uh, and it's partnering with a community-based organization when they're doing a campaign. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if, you know, back with Secure Communities, um, I, you know, I didn't have the bandwidth, but would have loved to have been able to say, we're going to go and do, we did a lot of actions in front of Varick Street, um, and you know, have all the students come and join us. And, uh, and you know, we will have other campaigns, and so I think that's one of the ways in which students can, can participate. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like an interesting prospect for City College? Yeah, I think so. I think um, especially the students on the Dream Team, they're, you know, they're such activists, yeah. right? And so I think having an organization will only make their voice stronger to partner with, right? So I think that's so important. And they can tell us. They can say, exactly. listen, we, we, you know, we think we should actually you know, take this road and, uh, and we as an organization would follow. Right, and they're not shy. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and the elections are coming up, right? And so some of our students can vote, some of our students can't vote, but really knowing what are, you know, where people stand with immigration issues. And, and you know what's interesting is that, um, uh, you know, there are, there are elections happening around the country, there are elections happening upstate, and uh, folks, even if they can't vote, they can call. Exactly. You know, they can, they can phone bank. Uh, they can put signs up, um, uh, you know, and I'm saying this is a nonpartisan, nonprofit, you know, just get the vote out. Right. They can uh, be the troops on the ground um, uh, to get people out to vote. Right. Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, the thing that strikes me as so disturbing about where we are right now is, is that any policy or set of policies that requires that you dehumanize a category yeah. of people in order to make it palatable to a, a larger share of the electorate smells bad. Mm -hmm. and, and this what we've seen in our country, in the city, in the state, across this nation, it just smells rotten. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to have two people on the show who are um, in the trenches working with, with, with 
people who we know are going to be, you know, solid, um, solid citizens, strong contributors, inventors, doctors, teachers, you name it. That's, that's who we are as a country. So I want to thank you for listening to From City to the World. A special thanks to our guest, Professor Tatiana Klein, who is the faculty advisor of City College's Dream Team, and Angela Fernandez, the executive director and supervising attorney of the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights. This show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreaux. Hey, this is the first time I got a production credit. Is that a new thing? Second time? So this is my second show that I've co-produced with uh, Angela Harden. I am your host, Vince Boudreaux, president of City College of New York. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here next month for the next edition of From City to the World. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>